pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct, distinct note, how will anyone uh, know what is played? And if the bugle gives an, indi an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking, um, into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may, he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and, the, by the, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to his people, to this people. And even when they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Their tongues are not a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, 
He is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secret of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, or a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in the tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the, other, the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be, be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the sin, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 36. Oh, was it from you that the word of God came? Oh, are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers honestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we come here today um, and we praise your name. God, with all our minds, soul, and spirit, we praise you for who you are. Holy, holy is your name. God, today with all creation we sing and we praise your name. For you are powerful, you are kind, you are loving, you are compassionate, you are love. Your justice. God, I pray that you open our eyes and hearts and every part of who we are and teach us to worship you and to glorify your name when we speak to you. God, we praise you for giving us your son. Thank you for giving him as a sacrifice so that in, the, in him we may have life. And thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who reminds us that we are weak that we need to be we need to be encouraged we need to be reminded of your word the holy spirit who teaches us how to obey you and so god as we um praise your name we are also reminded of our very sinful nature and we bring our our um, shortcomings to you today god i pray that you will um talk to each one um here and God, remind us of our sin and teach us to repent. And God, um, I pray that as we repent, we will listen 
as you lead us to the other side. God, today as we talk about tongues and prophecy and, uh, you know, listening to you and maintaining order in, in the church, God, I pray that you open our, again, hearts. I pray that you speak through Tommy. Um, I pray that you speak to the adults. I pray that you speak to the kids who are going to be here. I also pray that you will speak to the younger kids who may be downstairs today. Um, and God, uh, we may not forget to pray for the world, God. Um, the world as we live in it, the one, that, the part of the world that we live in that has so many people hurting, um, but also the world, the globe in general. There's so many things going on. Uh, people are broken, and we pray for the gospel to reach different parts of the world. We pray for relief. We pray for peace. Um, and God, uh, we commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Well, I am very glad that you are here with us this morning. My name is Pastor Tommy, um, and we are uh, continuing on this week in 1 Corinthians, uh, and we're going to be in chapter 14. That's a long passage. I, I don't think I realize how long it is until someone reads it out loud. Uh, so we're covering 40 verses this morning. This is an abbreviated service as well, but we're going to get through it. Uh, let me start by saying this, that when people, uh, when I was first telling people that we were going through 1 Corinthians, uh, there was like a lot of surprise. They were like, you're going through 1 Corinthians? That is really crazy. And I, I didn't really understand where they were coming from uh, until we started preaching through it. And we're almost all the way through. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is pretty hard. This is a difficult book to preach through. Uh, but hard isn't bad. And in fact, despite the challenge that it's been, this has been, I think, my favorite book to preach out of. Um, God has just really shown up every single week through each of the challenging texts. Uh, with the help of His Spirit, we, we've been able to get a sense of how these passages fit into the larger narrative of redemptive history and the gospel. So I hope that that's what you're hearing and seeing on a Sunday morning. I, I, I hope that what you're seeing is that, like, I'm not a magician working up here. And the other preachers aren't doing some sort of theological gymnastics up here. We all have access to the same book. And whoever's preaching has put a little bit more time, has invested time into trying to understand what this passage meant for the original audience. They're trying to view it in light of the gospel, and then they're taking time to present it to you all. And so this sermon series should give you confidence to approach difficult texts that might appear on the surface difficult or tricky. And that the reality is that God has given you, if you are a Christian, you have everything that you need to be able to understand and interpret his holy word. And so we're going to continue putting that to the test this week as we cover yet again a, a challenging passage of scripture. Chapter 14 talks about the more controversial gifts of the Holy Spirit, tongues and prophecy, and then slides in some difficult uh, verses later on talking about gender roles and women in the church, and we're going to get through that as well. But before we even start, let me pray for us one, one more time. God, we thank you for this time. And we thank you for your word that has been given to us. Thank you that you are not a God of confusion and chaos. Thank you that in you is order and peace. Help us this morning to behold your glory through your word as it's being preached. Dad, I, I just pray that you would help me do this well. Give us all eyes to see and ears to hear your voice. God, let the hearts of your church be stirred this morning. And let us not leave here the same way as when we came. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Both tongues and prophecy 
are culturally controversial. And not just today, but actually especially back in first century Corinth. So tongues, when we talk about that, we're talking about the Holy Spirit-enabled ability that allowed believers to worship God in an unintelligible language. We're going to talk more about that in a bit. And then prophecy, the Holy Spirit-enabled ability that allowed believers to spontaneously communicate divine revelation. In Corinth's culture, which highly valued flashy and showy displays of power and eloquence, these gifts were seen as the best gifts to have. So forget the gift of hospitality or of service. Those behind-the-scene gifts, they were helpful, but they weren't awesome like prophecy in tongues. This is how Corinth was viewing these gifts. And it's clear as you read 1 Corinthians that Paul calls out Corinth's unhealthy emphasis on these spiritual gifts um, as a means of boasting and puffing themselves up and, and trying to create an identity for themselves in using these gifts. And today, in our cultural sphere that we live in, the gifts of being able to worship God in a different language or, or speak, speaking a prophetic word into someone else's life is seen as maybe strange, maybe ultra-spiritual. We might view them as the weird gifts, that maybe we have dedicated room and you can exercise your gifts over there. See, we've actually, in some ways, flipped the Corinthian context. For us, it's more often that we'll say, well, we'll just serve behind the scenes. Like, let me just do the hospitable thing, and, 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 I'll, and I'll serve behind the scenes. I don't want to make a big whoop or cause a scene in front of people. So where Corinth tended to overvalue these gifts, I would say that we as a church, Mercy House, we would tend toward undervaluing them. Tongues and prophecy are also theologically controversial. And some people don't think that these gifts, these gifts exist anymore, um, and some do think that these gifts still exist. So cessationists would argue that these are special gifts that were provided to uh, the early church and the initial establishment of the foundation of the church that you read about in the early chapters of Acts, and thus have ceased since the church was established in the book of Acts. And continuationists would respond to that and say uh, that there's really no indication in Scripture that these gifts have ceased. And so just keep in mind that there are faithful, Jesus-loving, God-fearing, Bible-believing, Reformed, like people in our theological sphere who lie on both sides of this conversation. I happen to be a continuationist, so I believe that these gifts, specifically tongues and prophecy and healing, are still around, that there really isn't a biblically compelling reason to me that these gifts uh, have ceased, Uh, but this is an open-handed issue at Mercy House. You don't have to be a continuationist to be a member here at Mercy House, but we will teach from the front that these gifts are still active, and you're about to hear that right now. And one point I want to make before we even jump into this is you have to remember chapter 13. So Alden did a fantastic job last week faithfully preaching chapter 13, Um, and this is something that we need to keep in mind. So the way that chapter 13 opened was this. I'm going to read it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
See, we need to keep this in mind because without love, even our best, and even when our best and our correct efforts to understand and use these gifts, if we don't have love, then we are like a clanging cymbal. We gain nothing, and we're reduced to nothing. So it's pretty important that we keep love in mind. This is not just speaking to like the harshness of Paul. It's speaking to the incredible value and place of love in Christian community. We're seeing that it's why the gifts exist. The gifts are designed to lovingly edify and build up the body of believers. That is their purpose. And so keep this in mind, Mercy House, as we navigate through this passage. So let's look at verse 1 in chapter 14. Paul begins by saying, Pursue love and earnestly desire these spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul opens this chapter with the very first verse here, and it sets the stage. He's telling us to pursue love, which is a direct exhortation that is connecting us back to chapter 13, which came immediately before this. And so the actionable love that we saw in chapter 13 is going to be the umbrella concept that covers this entire conversation in chapter 14. We have to keep that in mind. He then encourages the Corinthians to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And so this shows us that he's continuing the conversation from chapter 12, two chapters ago. We talked about that two weeks ago. And understanding that spiritual gifts are given to us who are Christians, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they're to be used in the context of the church body with the purpose of building one another up. And again, this is helping us understand why these gifts even exist. That's why he's telling us to do it while pursuing love. Not to puff ourselves up, not to just serve ourselves with our gifts, but as a means to actively love one another. And lastly, he puts in a special emphasis on one gift in particular, and this is notable. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, this beckons us to pay special attention to prophecy, especially because he's about to talk about it for about 40 verses. This is uh, what you would consider the main proposition of this textual unit, verses 1 through 5. And we know this because it's an imperative, and because of the first word that comes after it. Verse 2 there, it starts with the word for, which means because. And so that word is showing us that he's setting up a logical structure for his entire discourse in chapter 14. Paul is making a case for his main proposition uh, that we should earnestly desire these gifts, which are done under the umbrella motivation of love for one another, especially prophecy. So the question is, why? Well, let's read on and see. Chapter, I'm sorry, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So here Paul begins by setting up two columns one for tongues and one for prophecy. And, and here's some of the first things that we learn about each, that the person who's speaking in tongues is speaking not to men, but to God, and no one else is able to understand him. So that's what tongues looks like. But on the other hand, in the other column, the one who prophesies speaks to other people, not to God, and people are able to understand them. Their words are understood. And the purpose for prophecy is for upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now, this is probably the most distinct 
difference between tongues and prophecy. Tongues are a form of communication to God that is unintelligible to other people, and prophecy is communication to other people, which is intelligible to other people. So let's go on. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So again, he's kind of going and filling in these two columns here, going back to the two columns under tongues, the tongues column, the act of speaking in tongues, it builds up the person who's speaking in tongues, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Okay, moving on to verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And pause right there. What we're seeing here is Paul affirming the gift of tongues. As he brings it up in these first five verses as a contrast to prophecy, he's not saying that tongues aren't good or that Corinth shouldn't use the gift of tongues. He's actually saying the exact opposite right here. He's saying, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Why? Because he says the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. So in other words, tongues are good, but prophecy is better. Why? One of the things that we need to remember is that umbrella motivation that this passage opened up with, which is to pursue love. Remember that the purpose of these gifts, as you read about them in chapter 12, is to build up and encourage unity within the body of believers. This isn't just an umbrella motivation for these verses in chapter 14. This is a consistent narrative that flows through all of 1 Corinthians. The church at Corinth has a fractured fellowship. They're full of sinful ambition and pride, which has led to great division within their church. And Paul has been exhorting them and encouraging them to love one another, to unite together, to to unite in Christ as one body, together as a church. Prophecy is better than tongues because it accomplishes its purpose as a spiritual gift more directly. It, by default, by its very nature of clear communication to other people, encourages and builds up the church. The gift of tongues does not do this by default because no one can understand tongues. And in some cases where we're going to see not even the person speaking in tongues understands what they're saying. That's why prophecy is better. Except, and there's an exception here, look at the end of verse 5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So I think it's clear that the value of these gifts, which speak, uh, speaks to even the purpose of the gifts themselves, the value of which is, is found in their ability to build up the church, to encourage one another. Now this seems pretty straightforward, but Paul spends another 20 verses defending this argument. You might wonder why, and I think the reason is uh, because the Corinthians have a very different view and experience of tongues than we do here today. So here at Mercy House, to my recollection, we have not had anyone at church speak in tongues during the service, whether it was or without interpretation. That hasn't happened, at least from the front here. No one has ever come to me, at least, and asked, hey, I I speak in tongues. Would I be able to share that uh, with the church? That hasn't happened. Maybe it starts today uh, because we're talking about this, but in Corinth, it was incredibly normal. 
it was actually more than normal. It, it got to the point of complete chaos and disorder because it seemed like everyone in the church spoke uh, in tongues and everyone was able to have prophecy, or at least they thought that they did. And what you see later on is that it's creating an atmosphere of complete chaos. Everyone is speaking in tongues, everyone's prophesying, they're speaking over and yelling over each other, and it's absolutely crazy. So the context for the Corinthians with these gifts is different. What you see then in verses 6 through 12 is Paul kind of pumps the brakes a little bit on the gift of tongues. I'm going to read 6 through 12, starting in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So in short, what Paul is saying is that if an instrument is tuned wrong and you try to play those notes, no one's going to know what that song is. It's unintelligible. He goes on to say, if you speak with words that aren't intelligible, then you're just like throwing words into the air, into the abyss. No one can understand what you're saying. His second example here, actually the third example here, using different languages is even more helpful, especially for those who are not as musical. So I was meeting with Jose Infante this week, and um, he was sharing with me his testimony, which you're going you're gonna to be able to hear next week as he gets baptized at Puffer's Pond, which is really exciting. But here's what struck me as, as we were talking. At one point, Jose shared, because English is not his first language, and so he just shared, sometimes it's really difficult to express myself in English. It, it's harder um, to, to communicate deeper things from my past and even what I'm experiencing, which is completely understandable, Jose. Like, I can't imagine trying to share my story in a different language. Now, Jose could have shared his testimony in his native tongue, which is Spanish, and he'd be more able to clearly articulate deeper and maybe more complex feelings and emotions and his experiences, but I would not be able to understand him. It would not be intelligible. And verse 11 says, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So no matter how much Duolingo I do before we meet up, like, I would not be able to understand what he was saying. Jose would be, uh, and I would be foreigners to one another. I think based on this, that tongues have no value if the person who hears the gift being used has no idea of what's being said, Paul continues on, starting in verse 13. He says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, 
I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. In these verses, we get a little more understanding of what tongues can look like. Tongues can be used in prayer. Tongues can be used in singing praise to God. But Paul's argument still stands. What Paul points out is that not only are tongues uh, not valuable for those who can't understand them, there's even a risk of the person themselves having an unfruitful experience. That's why Paul encourages them to pray that their spirit is expressing itself through tongues uh, and and in prayer and, and in worship, that as they're doing that, they would also be able to understand themselves with their mind. That it wouldn't just be purely a spiritual expression, but one that also engages their understanding and comprehension as well. And so Paul makes another case here by saying, look, if you're praying in tongues, how can anyone say amen in agreement with your prayer if they can't understand you? That's like a very practical thing. You might be praying an amazing, heartfelt, really rich, deep, theologically profound prayer, but it's not going to mean anything to anyone else if they don't know what you're saying. Verse 17 says, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the person is not being built up. Again, pointing back to that umbrella uh, motivation for all of this is building up the church, using these gifts to edify one another. Now, Paul is not bashing tongues. He's not condemning them, even though it might seem like he's being pretty relentless here. But look at verses 18 and 19. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So Paul is a fan of tongues. He's glad that he speaks in tongues more than the church at Corinth does, which is, I think, saying a lot because they speak a lot in tongues. There's a time and a place. And Paul says here that when he's in church, he'd rather speak five words in order to instruct others Words that can be used to encourage and build up and edify the church as opposed to 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul values tongues, but in church, speaking intelligible words is 4,000 times more valuable. That's the math there. Paul's last bit of argument for the case of why prophecy is greater than uninterpreted tongues is seen in this last section, in uh, verses 20 through 25. And, and this is where we start getting a glimpse into the nature of prophecy. So read with me. Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not Uh, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So the final argument has in mind how unbelievers are going to experience these gifts. 
And essentially what Paul is saying is that if an unbeliever comes into a church and everybody is speaking in tongues, they're going to think that everyone is crazy. They'll think that everyone in the church has gone out of their minds because they can't understand what is going on in the church. But if an unbeliever comes in the church and they hear a prophetic word, if a prophetic word is spoken in an intelligible language, that is something that is communicated with divine revelation, something that speaks um, incredible truth and conviction into someone's specific life, that the person who is giving the prophecy would have no business knowing other than the fact that it has been revealed divinely by God himself to say those words. When that happens, you see what happens in verse 24, the second half there. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God. God and declare that God is really among you. Tongues are a a spiritual gift, but without interpretation, they aren't edifying for members of the church. They're not fruitful for the individual who's speaking in the tongues if they don't know what's happening, and they're off-putting to unbelievers who might come into the church. But prophecy is different. It's clear communication. It's intelligible and understandable by all and speaking with powerful divine revelation into the lives of the hearers, which by its nature is designed to encourage and build up those who follow Christ. And if you're not a Christ follower, it can convict and lead you to repentance. It leads to eternal life in Christ for those who don't have a relationship with God. I think this is the main argument for why we ought to pursue prophecy as opposed to tongues. Not saying that tongues is bad. Remember that. These are both good gifts. One is more edifying to the church body. So then in verses 26 to the end, Paul gives some very practical instructions for how to use the gifts. He says to set a limit and have people go one at a time. If there's no one to interpret the tongues, then that person should keep silent as opposed to coming up uh, to the front and sharing that with everyone. Those with a prophetic word can speak, but they should do it one at a time. Prophets are not out of control. They're not uh, out of control of their spiritual emotions and anything that's happening. They're not just blurting out their prophecies. Verse 32 says, And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So in the NIV, a different translation, it's, it's translated as the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. So what this means is that prophets are able to be under control. It's not an excuse to say, oh, I have a prophecy and it's just got to get out of me. No. Paul's saying, hey, it's under control by the person who is communicating the prophecy. You're not just being spiritually swept away in this. So what's clear in these verses is that church in Corinth had become a bit of a circus. It's a bit of a circus there. Paul needs to establish some order by giving them some basic social etiquette because it's become absolute chaos in the church. People are just standing up and shouting out in tongues. And people are standing up and they're just prophesying. And they're not even taking turns. They're doing it at the same time. And they're kind of yelling over each other. I mean, it's absolute pandemonium. Verses 34 and 35, as you read those, would seem problematic when you take them in isolation but they should be viewed in the context here of a chaotic worship service in Corinth. I'm going to read them starting in 33, uh, at the end of 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in churches. It's a tough verse, tough verse. I'm just going to say that without any context. 
for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So we are short on time, but I do want to handle these verses. What this passage here, these few verses, is not saying is that women cannot ever speak in church. That is not what this, these verses are saying. We know this because chapter 11 earlier permits and assumes that women are praying and prophesying in church. Almost all commentators agree that verses 34 and 35 are speaking to the, the specific situation in Corinth and should not be understood as a general prohibition that women can't speak in churches. That would not be consistent with the rest of Scripture. And so, the language that you see in verse 34, that women should be in submission does imply that the way that they are speaking is insubordinate or disrespectful in a certain way that is contributing to the chaos of people who are shouting in tongues and blurting out their prophecies over and on top of one another. And so, as in all the churches, Paul's exhortation is that women should not do this. And the command to keep silent there is not unique and distinct to women. It is the same one that's given to those who, just earlier there, uh, who want to speak in tongues, but there is not an interpreter. Verse 28. What Paul is trying to do is she's trying to instill peace. That's the conversation that's being had. Paul starts this chapter by casting this reminder and vision that everything he's communicating is under this umbrella of love for one another. Pursue love. It continues to be clear that love is at the heart of this passage because of the value, the way that he values both tongues and prophecy. And that is through their effectiveness in loving one another. But I think that as you read this, Here is the larger truth, that the lack of love doesn't just reduce the fruitfulness of our gifts. In the context of love, when we're not doing 1 Corinthians 13 love, when we're not being patient with one another or bearing with one another or being kind toward one another um, or, or believing all things or hoping all things, when we're not doing that as a church, the church body tends toward disorder and chaos. As people are elbowing one another to be seen and heard, as people insist on their own way, as everyone is envious of one another and boastful and caring only for themselves, church becomes a circus. It does. Maybe not overtly and with fireworks like it is here with these outspoken gifts being misused in Corinth, prophecy and tongues, but when we aren't loving one another, we are not being a unified body where members are being built up, encouraged, or consoled. If there is not love, we are a community of clanging cymbals and noisy gongs, chaotic and out of order. There are two principles I hope that we can take away from this passage this morning. And the first, as you take a step back from the passage, would be that Christian faith is spiritual and supernatural. Christian faith is spiritual and supernatural. Passages like this help us remember that what we're doing here is not like an organization or a club, okay? We are not bonded together by having some shared morals or values. Church and faith are supernatural by nature, and there are times that we might not fully grasp what's happening around us. We might not fully understand. Maybe our brains don't fully wrap around the things that we see. In our church and cultural context, tongues and prophecy are not the norm, 
But it might be that some of you have these gifts. And you need to hear that these gifts are good gifts from God, and most importantly, therefore building up our church here. And so I hope that you hear that as you've experienced these gifts, maybe you didn't know what they are. Hopefully now you know what they are. Maybe if you have felt alienated or strange or weird, that you wouldn't feel strange or weird, or any more strange and weird than any of us in this room are strange and weird. Because let's be honest, right? Like, this is the gospel, that we believe that God became a man. He died on the cross for our sins. We buried him in a tomb with a giant rock and boulder. He came alive again. That boulder was rolled away, and he's going to come back someday, and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to all live together in a giant kingdom in peace and and just perfect fellowship with God and with one another, one another forever and ever. Like, that is strange, and that is weird. <laughs> that is not what is normal, and that is because our faith is spiritual. It is supernatural. It is something that is beyond what our eyes can see and even what science can measure. And just like prophecy or tongues or any other of the spiritual gifts, this is a spiritual and supernatural experience that we have as Christians. But we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid because, and this is the second thing that I hope you take away from this morning, when life is confusing and chaotic, we turn to God where there is order and peace. When life is confusing and chaotic, we turn to God where there is order and peace. Look at verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul's pastoring and leading of the church to help them provide order and peace among their fellowship, it's not just to make a neater or nicer organization. It is an impression of a much larger reality. See, verse 33 is, is, is a powerful verse, and its placement is peculiar, but it's very intentional by Paul. And what it communicates is that the church, as it lives out its intended design as revealed in God's word, it actually speaks to the nature and the character of God. And that's really important because what we see in chapter 12 is that we all are members of one body, but that body is not just any body. That body is the body of God. Christ is the head. We are the body. And if the head, by nature, is not of confusion or of chaos, but of peace and of order, then we too, as his body, ought to strive for peace and order. This is even bigger than church. The greatest form of chaos and disorder is sin. And the story of redemption is one of restoring what is in chaos back to what is right. And our eternal trajectory is one toward order and peace. And this is not talking about like a heaven for type A's where a place for everything and everything in its place. But as we look at the world, sin puts things out of order. That's why we can say with discernment that, man, that is just not right. And we can be heartbroken and angry and frustrated about it. This is not talking about an aesthetic preference for something, but being able to identify moral fractures and deep areas of brokenness around us. We were made to be 
whole, to experience goodness, to experience what is right. But we can identify when things are broken and out of place, and our hearts long for that rightness to be restored. That's what we want to see in the world around us. That's what we want to see in ourselves. The good news is that Jesus takes what is disordered and chaotic because of sin, and he restores it. And the disorder and the chaos of sin is absolutely disastrous. And we're not talking about a messy bedroom that you've got to spend the afternoon cleaning. We're not talking about just a messy church. We've got to kind of get together and have some conversations and patch things together. We're talking about deep fractures in the very foundation of creation, which can only be mended by the blood of Christ. That is deep brokenness. And whether we experience chaos and disorder in the world around us, which is very plentiful, or chaos and disorder in our very hearts and in our lives, which is also very plentiful, so whether it's the sin in the world around us or the sin in ourselves, in either case, we turn to God. We turn to God who restores and brings peace. A beautiful image of this is seen in Acts chapter 3, and this is going to be on your screens, starting in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. If you are not a Christian this morning and you're hearing this, I want to encourage you to do what these verses say, which is to repent, which means to turn, and specifically to turn to Jesus so that you may experience refreshment and peace in Christ. If the greatest disorder and chaos in our lives is sin, verse 9 is great news. We see that turning to Christ blots out our sin, which leads us to experience true refreshment and true peace. And not just momentarily, but eternally. And so turn to God this morning. Repent that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The God who comes into our messes is not afraid of the messy bedroom. If you are a Christian, you too can repent. If you have been living in chaos and disorder in your life, I want to exhort you to repent. If your life is in shambles and you are a mess, turn back to Christ. That times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. And then we wait. We wait with great anticipation for Jesus to, rest, to retor, return and to restore all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The presence of the Lord is where there is this restoration and this peace. And that's what's signified when we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. As we take communion this morning, remember 
that when you take it, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. And that death was the price that needed to be paid in order to restore the, or, the, the, the chaos that's in our lives and to bring us back into order and back into and held in the perfect peace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we don't have to be intimidated or afraid when we look at passages and uh, are scratching our heads and are unsure how to understand or interpret it. But we thank you for your spirit, which enables us to understand and comprehend. God, we thank you that you have done so much to get your word into our hands. And I pray that we as a church would grow in our desire and our joy and our excitement to hear and read and understand your word. Father, we confess that we don't know how to use all of the spiritual gifts. God, we confess that we don't always love one another, even if we know how to use those gifts, which renders those gifts useless. So help us, God, pursue love. Help us, God, to earnestly desire these spiritual gifts. Help us as a church understand how prophecy and tongues can fit into the building up of our church and the unity and the sweetness of fellowship that we can have with one another. Lord, thank you that you give us as a church everything we need. God, most importantly, you give us yourself. And so I pray now, as we take communion, as we remember your sacrifice, that you would help us, Father, to return and to repent and to turn back to you so that, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, we would be able to experience refreshing that comes from the presence of you. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.